Section 8 of The Sunny Side by A. A. Milne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 6 A Few Guests. Bad Lord Blight. A Moral Story for the Middle Aged. 1. Seated in the well appointed library of Blight Hall, John Blighter, 17th Earl of Blight, bowed his head in his hands and gave himself up to despair. The day of reckoning had come. Were appearances not so deceptive, one would have said that Lord Blight, Blight as he was known familiarly to his friends, was a man to be envied. In a revolving bookcase in the middle of the spacious library were countless treasured volumes, including a complete edition of Thackeray. Outside, in the well-kept grounds of the estate, was a new lawn-mower. A bottle of sherry, freshly uncorked, stood upon the sideboard in the dining-room. But worldly possessions are not everything. An untroubled mind, as Shakespeare knew, even if he didn't actually say it, is more to be valued than riches. The seventeenth Earl of Blight's mind was not untroubled. His conscience was gnawing at him. Some people would say, no doubt, that his conscience was too sensitive. True, there were episodes in his past life of which, in later years, he could not wholly approve. But is this not the case with every one of us? Far better, as must often have occurred to Milton, to strive for the future than to regret the past. Ten years ago, Lord Blight had been plain John Blighter, with no prospects in front of him. Realizing that he could expect little help from others, he decided to push for himself. He began by pushing three cousins over the cliffs at Scarborough, thus becoming second heir to the earldom. A week later, he pushed an elder brother over the same cliff, and was openly referred to in the press as the next bearer of the title. Barely a fortnight had elapsed before a final push diverted the last member of the family, a valued uncle, into the ever-changing sea, the venue in this case being Whitby, presumably in order to avoid suspicion. But all this had happened ten years ago, the past is the past, as Wordsworth probably said to Coleridge more than once. It was time for Lord Blight to forget these incidents of his eager and impetuous youth. Yet somehow he could not. Within the last few days his conscience had begun to gnaw him, and in his despair he told himself that at last the day of reckoning had come. Poor Blight! It is difficult to withhold our sympathy from him. The door opened, and his wife, the Countess of Blight, came into the library. Blight, she whispered, my poor Blight, what has happened? He looked up haggardly. Gertie, he said, for that was her name, it is all over. My sins have found me out. Not sins, she said gently, mistakes. Mistakes. Yes, you are right. He stretched out a hand, took a letter from the desk in front of him, and gave it to her. Read that. 
With a groan, he buried his head in his hands again. She took it and read, slowly and wonderingly, these words. To lawnmower as delivered, five pounds, seventeen shillings, sixpence. Lord Blight looked up with an impatient ejaculation. Give it to me, he said in some annoyance, snatching it away from her and throwing it into the waste-paper basket. Here, this is the one. Read it, read it quickly, for we must decide what to do. She read it with starting eyes. Dear sir, I am prepared to lend you anything from ten pounds to ten thousand pounds on your note of hand alone, should you wish... <clears throat> said the seventeenth Earl of Blight. Here, where is the blessed thing? He felt in his pockets. I must have... I only had it a... Ah, here it is. Perhaps I had better read it to you this time. He put on his spectacles, a present from an aunt, and read as follows. My lord, we regret to inform you that a claimant to the title has arisen. It seems that, soon after the death of his first wife, the sixteenth Earl of Blight contracted a second and secret marriage to Ellen Podby, by whom he had eleven sons, the eldest of whom is now asserting his right to the earldom and estates. Trusting to be favoured with your instructions in the matter, we are, my lord, yours faithfully, Billings, Billings, and Billings. Gertie, Countess of Blight, looked at her husband in horror. Eleven, she cried. Eleven, said the earl gloomily. Then a look of grim determination came into his eyes, with the air of one who might have been quoting Keats, but possibly wasn't, he said firmly, "'What man has done, man can do.' That evening the Countess of Blight gave orders for eleven spare bedrooms to be got ready. 2. On the morning after the arrival of the eleven Podbees, as they had been taught to call themselves, John, seventeenth Earl of Blight, spoke quite frankly to Algernon, the eldest. "'After all, my dear Algernon,' he said, "'we are cousins. There is no need for harsh words between us. All I ask is that you should forbear to make your claim until I have delivered my speech in the House of Lords on the Coast Erosion Bill, upon which I feel deeply.' Once the bill is through, I shall be prepared to retire in your favour. Meanwhile, let us all enjoy together the simple pleasures of Blight Hall. Algernon, a fair young man with a meaningless expression, replied suitably. So, for some days, the eleven Podbees gave themselves up to pleasure. Percy, the youngest, though hardly of an age to appreciate the mechanism of it, was allowed to push the lawn-mower. Lancelot and Herbert, who had inherited the Podby intellect, were encouraged to browse around the revolving bookcase, from which they frequently extracted one of the works of Thackeray, replacing it again after a glance at the title-page, while on one notable occasion the Earl of Blight took Algernon into the dining-room at about 11.31 in the morning, and helped him to a glass of sherry and a slice of sultana cake. 
In this way the days passed happily, and confidence between the eleven Podbys and their cousin was established. It was on a fair spring morning, just a week after their arrival, that the Countess of Blight came into the music-room, where Algernon was humming a tune, and said, "'Ah, Algernon, my husband was looking for you. I think he has some little excursion to propose. What a charming day, is it not?' "'You will find him in the library.' "'As Algernon entered the library, "'Lord Blight looked up from the map he was studying and nodded. "'I thought,' he said, coming to the point at once, "'that it might amuse you to drive over with me to Flamborough Head. "'The view from the top of the cliff is considered well worth a visit. "'I don't know if your tastes lie in that direction at all.' Algernon was delighted at the idea, and replied that nothing would give him greater pleasure than to accompany Lord Blight. Excellent. Perhaps we had better take some sandwiches and make a day of it. Greatly elated at the thought of a day by the sea, Lord Blight went out and gave instructions to the Countess for sandwiches to be cut. In two packets, my love, he added, in case Algernon and I get separated. Half an hour later they started off together in high spirits. It was dark before the seventeenth Earl of Blight returned to the house and joined the others at the dinner-table. His face wore a slightly worried expression. "'The fact is, my dear,' he said, in answer to a question from the Countess, "'I am a little upset about Algernon. I fear we have lost him.' "'Algernon?' said the Countess, in surprise. "'Yes. We were standing at the top of Flamborough Head, looking down into the sea, when—' He paused and tapped his glass. "'Sherry, Jenkins,' he said, catching the butler's eye. "'I beg your pardon, my lord.' "'When poor Algernon stumbled, and—do any of you boys know if your brother can swim?' Everard, the ninth, said that Algernon had floated once in the Paddington Baths, but couldn't swim. Ah, I was hoping, but, in any case, coming into the water from that height, well, well, we must face our troubles bravely. Another glass of sherry, Jenkins. As they passed through the hall on their way to the drawing-room, Lord Blight stopped a moment at the aneroid barometer and gave it an encouraging tap. "'It looks like another fine day to-morrow,' he said to Cuthbert, the second Podby. "'The panorama from the Scalby Cliffs is unrivaled. We might drive over and have a look at it.'" 3. Fortunately, the weather held up. A week later the Podby family had been thinned down to five, and the seventeenth Earl of Blight was beginning to regain his usual equanimity. His health, too, was benefiting by the constant sea air and change, for in order that no melancholy associations should cast a gloom over their little outings, he took care to visit a different health resort each time, feeling that no expense or trouble should be spared in a matter of this kind. It was wonderful with what vigour and alertness of mind he sat down in the evenings to the preparation of his speech 
on the Coast Erosion Bill. One night after dinner, when all the Podby family, Basil and Percy, had retired to bed, Gertie, Countess of Blight, came into her husband's library and, twirling the revolving bookcase with restless fingers, asked if she could interrupt him for a moment. "'Yes,' he said, looking up at her. "'I am anxious, Blight,' she answered, "'anxious about Percy.' "'So am I, my love,' he responded gravely. "'I fear that to-morrow,' he consulted a leather pocket-book, "'no, the day after to-morrow, something may happen to him. "'I have an uneasy feeling. "'It may be that I am superstitious.' "'Yet something tells me that in the book of fate "'the names of Percy and Bridlington,' "'he consulted his diary again, "'yes, Bridlington, "'the names, as I was saying, of—' "'She interrupted him with an impatient gesture. "'You misunderstand me,' she said. "'That is not why I am anxious. "'I am anxious because of something "'I have just learnt about Percy.' "'I am afraid he is going to be—' "'Troublesome?' suggested Lord Blight. "'She nodded. "'I have learnt to-day,' she explained, "'that he has a horror of high places.' "'You mean that on the cliffs of, as it might be, Bridlington, "'some sudden unbridled terror may cause him to hurl himself. "'You will never get him to the cliffs of Bridlington.' "'He can't even look out of a first-floor window. "'He won't walk up the gentlest slope. "'That is why he is always playing with the lawn-mower.' "'The Earl frowned and tapped on his desk with a penholder. "'This is very grave news, Gertie,' he said. "'How is it that the boy comes to have this unmanly weakness?' "'It seems he has always had it. "'He should have been taken in hand.' "'Even now, perhaps it is not too late. "'It is our duty to wean him from these womanish apprehensions. "'Too late. "'Unless you carried him up there in a sack.' "'No, no,' protested the Earl vigorously. "'My dear, the seventeenth Earl of Blight carrying a sack? "'Impossible.' "'For a while there was a silence while they brooded over the tragic news.' "'Perhaps,' said the Countess, at last, "'there are other ways. "'It may be that Percy is fond of fishing.' Lord Blight shifted uncomfortably in his seat. When he spoke, it was with a curiously apologetic air. "'I am afraid, my dear,' he said, "'that you will think me foolish. "'No doubt I am. "'You must put it down to the artistic temperament.' "'But I tell you quite candidly that it is as impossible for me to lose Percy in a boating accident "'as it would be for, shall I say, Sergeant to appear as Hamlet, "'or a violinist to wish to exhibit at the Royal Academy. "'One has one's art, one's medium of expression. "'It is at the top of the high cliff with an open view of the sea that I express myself best. "'Also,' he added, with some heat, "'I feel strongly that what was good enough for Percy's father, ten brothers, three half-brothers, not to mention his cousin, "'should be good enough for Percy.' "'The Countess of Blight moved sadly from the room. "'Well,' 
she said as she stopped for a moment at the door we must hope for the best perhaps percy will overcome this aversion in time you might talk seriously to him about it to-morrow said the earl referring once more to his diary basil and i are visiting the romantic scarps of filey four on the day following the unfortunate accident at filey the earl and countess of blight reclined together upon the cliffs of bridlington if we only had had percy here sighed the earl it was something to have got him as far as the beach said the countess hopefully perhaps in time a little higher every day the earl sighed again the need for self-expression comes strongly upon the artist at a time like this he said it is not for me to say that i have genius it is for me to say it dear said his wife well well perhaps in my own line and at the full height of one's powers to be balked by the morbidity for i can call it nothing else of a percy podby gertie he went on dreamily i wish i could make you understand something of the fascination which an artist finds in his medium to be lying here at the top of the world with the lazy sea crawling beneath us so many feet below look said the countess suddenly she pointed to the beach the earl rose stretched his head over the edge and gazed down percy he said yes almost exactly beneath us if anything fell upon him from here said the earl thoughtfully it is quite possible that suddenly the fascination whereof he had spoken to her came irresistibly home to the countess yes she said as if in a trance if anything fell upon him from here and she gave her husband a thoughtful push it is quite possible that at the word that the earl reached percy and simultaneously the title expired poor blight or perhaps since the title was never really his we should say poor blighter it is difficult to withhold our sympathy from him high jinks at happy thought hall an inevitable article in any decent magazine at christmas time read it carefully and then have an uproarious time in your own little house it was a merry party assembled at happy thought hall for christmas the squire liked company and the friends whom he had asked down for the festive season had all stayed at happy thought hall before and were therefore well acquainted with each other no wonder then that the wit flowed fast and furious and that the guests all agreed afterwards that they had never spent such a jolly christmas and that the best of all possible hosts was squire tregarthen first we must introduce some of the squire's guests to our readers the reverend arthur manley a clever young clergyman with a taste for gardening was talking in one corner to miss phipps a pretty girl of some twenty summers 
Captain Bolsover, a smart cavalry officer, together with Professor and Mrs. Smith Smythe from Oxford, formed a small party in another corner. Handsome Jack Ellison was, as usual, in deep conversation with the beautiful Miss Holden, who, it was agreed among the ladies of the party, was not altogether indifferent to his fine figure and remarkable prospects. There were other guests, but as they chiefly played the part of audience in the events which followed, their names will not be of any special interest to the reader. Suffice it to say that they were all intelligent, well-dressed, and ready for any sort of fun. Now, thank heaven, we can begin. A burst of laughter from Captain Bolsover attracted general attention, and everybody turned in his direction. "'By Jove, Professor, that's good,' he said, as he slapped his knee. "'You must tell the others that.' "'It was just a little incident that happened to me today, as I was coming down here,' said the professor, as he beamed round on the company. "'I happened to be rather late for my train, and as I bought my ticket, I asked the clerk what time it was.' He replied, "'If it takes six seconds for a clock to strike six, how long will it take to strike twelve? I said twelve seconds, but it seems I was wrong. The others all said twelve seconds, too, but they were all wrong. Can you guess the right answer?' When the laughter had died down, the Reverend Arthur Manley said, that reminds me of an amusing experience which occurred to my housekeeper last friday she was ordering a little fish for my lunch and the fishmonger when asked the price of herrings replied three halfpence for one and a half to which my housekeeper said then i will have twelve how much did she pay he smiled happily at the company one and sixpence of course said miss phipps no no ninepence cried the squire with a hearty laugh captain bolsover made it come to one pound three shillings and the professor thought fourpence but once again they were all wrong what do you make it come to it was now captain bolsover's turn for an amusing puzzle and the others turned eagerly towards him. "'What was that one about a door?' said the squire. "'You were telling me when we were out shooting yesterday, Bolsover?' Captain Bolsover looked surprised. "'Ah, no, it was young Reggie Warlock,' said the squire, with a hearty laugh. "'Oh, do tell us, squire,' said everybody. "'It was just a little riddle, my dear,' said the squire to Miss Phipps, always a favourite of his. "'When is a door not a door?' Miss Phipps said when it was a cucumber, but she was wrong. So were the others. See if you can be more successful.' "'Yes, that's very good,' said Captain Bolsover. "'It reminds me of something which occurred during the Boer War.' everybody listened eagerly we were just going into action and i happened to turn round to my men and say now then boys give em beans 
To my amusement, one of them replied smartly, How many blue beans make five? We were all so interested in working it out that we never got into action at all. But that's easy, said the professor. Five. Four, said Miss Phipps. She would, silly kid. Six, said the squire. Which was right. Jack Ellison had been silent during the laughter and jollity, always such a feature of Happy Thought Hall at Christmas time, but now he contributed an ingenious puzzle to the amusement of the company. I met a man in a motor bus, he said in a quiet voice, who told me that he had four sons. The eldest son, Abraham, had a dog who used to go and visit the three brothers occasionally. The dog, my informant told me, was very unwilling to go over the same ground twice, and yet, being in a hurry, wished to take the shortest journey possible. How did he manage it? For a little while, the company was puzzled. Then, after deep thought, the professor said, "'It depends on where they lived.' yes said ellison i forgot to say that my acquaintance drew me a map he produced a paper from his pocket here it is the others immediately began to puzzle over the answer miss phipps being unusually foolish even for her it was some time before they discovered the correct route what do you think it is well said the squire with a hearty laugh it's time for bed one by one they filed off saying what a delightful evening they had had jack ellison was particularly empathic for the beautiful miss holden had promised to be his wife he for one will never forget christmas at happy thought hall THE ARRIVAL OF BLACKMAN'S WARBLER I am become an authority on birds. It happened in this way. The other day we heard the cuckoo in Hampshire. The next morning the papers announced that the cuckoo had been heard in Devonshire, possibly a different one, but in no way superior to ours, except in the matter of its press agent. Well, everybody in the house said... "'Did you hear the cuckoo?' to everybody else, "'until I began to get rather tired of it, "'and having told everybody several times that I had heard it, "'I tried to make the conversation more interesting. "'So, after my tenth yes, I added, quite casually, "'But I haven't heard the tufted pippet yet. "'It's funny why it should be so late this year.' "'Is that the same as the tree pipit?' said my hostess, who seemed to know more about birds than I had hoped. "'Oh, no,' I said quickly. "'What's the difference, exactly?' "'Well, one is tufted,' I said, doing my best, "'and the other, er, climbs trees. "'Oh, I see.' "'And, of course, the eggs are more speckled,' I added, gradually acquiring confidence." "'I often wish I knew more about birds,' she said regretfully. "'You must tell us something about them, now we've got you here.' "'And all this because of one miserable cuckoo.' 
"'By all means,' I said, wondering how long it would take to get a good book about birds down from London. However, it was easier than I thought. We had tea in the garden that afternoon, and a bird of some kind struck up in the plane tree. "'There now,' said my hostess, "'what's that?' I listened, with my head on one side. The bird said it again. "'That's the lesser bunting,' I said, hopefully. "'The lesser bunting,' said an earnest-looking girl. "'I shall always remember that.' I hoped she wouldn't, but I could hardly say so. Fortunately, the bird lesser bunted again, and I seized the opportunity of playing for safety.' "'Or is it the Sardinian white-throat?' I wondered. "'They have very much the same note during the breeding season, "'but of course the eggs are more speckled,' I added, casually. "'And so on, for the rest of the evening. "'You see how easy it is.' "'However, the next afternoon a more unfortunate occurrence occurred. "'A real bird authority came to tea.' As soon as the information leaked out, I sent up a hasty prayer for bird silence until we had got him safely out of the place, but it was not granted. Our feathered songster in the plane tree broke into his little piece. There, said my hostess, there's that bird again. She turned to me. What did you say it was? I hoped that the authority would speak first, and that the others would then accept my assurance that they had misunderstood me the day before. But he was entangled at that moment in a watercress sandwich, the loose ends of which were still waiting to be tucked away. I looked anxiously at the girl who had promised to remember, in case she wanted to say something, but she also was silent. Everybody was silent, except that miserable bird. "'Well, I had to have another go at it. "'Blackman's Warbler,' I said firmly. "'Oh, yes,' said my hostess. "'Blackman's Warbler. "'I shall always remember that,' lied the earnest-looking girl. "'The authority, who was free by this time, looked at me indignantly. "'Nonsense,' he said. "'It's the chiff-chaff.' "'Everybody else looked at me reproachfully.' I was about to say that Blackman's Warbler was the local name for the chiff-chaff in our part of Somerset, when the authority spoke again. "'The chiff-chaff,' he said to our hostess, with an insufferable air of knowledge. "'I wasn't going to stand that.' "'So I thought, when I heard it first, I said, giving him a gentle smile. It was now the authority's turn to get the reproachful looks.' "'Are they very much alike?' my hostess asked me, much impressed. "'Very much. Blackman's Warbler is often mistaken for the chiff-chaff, even by so-called experts.' And I turned to the authority and added, "'Have another sandwich, won't you?' "'Particularly so, of course, during the breeding season. It is true that the eggs are more speckled, but—' "'Bless my soul,' said the authority—' but it was easy to see that he was shaken. I should think I know a chiff-chaff when I hear one. Ah, but do you know a blackman's warbler? One doesn't often hear them in this country. Now in Algiers... 
The bird said, Chiff-chaff, again, with an almost indecent plainness of speech. There you are, I said triumphantly. Listen, and I held up a finger. You notice the difference? Obviously, a blackman's warbler. Everybody looked at the authority. He was wondering how long it would take to get a book about birds down from London, and deciding that it couldn't be done that afternoon. Meanwhile, he did not dare to repudiate me. For all he had caught of our mumbled introduction, I might have been Blackman myself. "'Possibly you're right,' he said reluctantly. Another bird said, "'Chiff-chaff,' from another tree, and I thought it wise to be generous. "'There,' I said, "'now that was a chiff-chaff.' The earnest-looking girl remarked, "'Silly creature,' that it sounded just like the other one, but nobody took any notice of her. They were all busy admiring me. Of course I mustn't meet the authority again, because you may be pretty sure that when he got back to his books he looked up Blackman's Warbler and found that there was no such animal. But if you mix in the right society and only see the wrong people once, it is really quite easy to be an authority on birds." or, I imagine, on anything else. THE LAST STRAW DISILLUSIONED The card was just an ordinary card. The letter just an ordinary letter. The letter simply said, Dear Mr. Brown, I'm asked by Mrs. Phipp to send you this. The card said, Mrs. Philby Phipp at home and in a corner dancing ten p m no more except a date a hint in french that a reply would not be deemed offensive and most important mrs phipps's address destiny as poets have observed or will do shortly is a mighty thing it takes us by the ear and lugs us firmly down different paths toward one common goal paths pre-appointed not of our own choosing, or sometimes throws two travellers together, marches them side by side for half a mile, then snatches them apart and hauls them onward. Thus happened it that Mrs. Phipp and I had never met to any great extent, had never met, as far as I remembered, at all, and yet there must have been a time when she and I were very near together when someone told her, that is Mr. Brown, or introduced us, this is Mr. Brown, or asked her if she'd heard of Mr. Brown. I know not what, I only know that now, she stood at home in need of Mr. Brown, and I had pledged myself to her assistance. Behold me on the night, the latest word, in all that separates the gentlemen and waiters from the evening dressless mob, and graced, moreover, by the latest word, in waistcoats such as mark one from the waiters. My shirt, I must not speak about my shirt. My tie, I cannot dwell upon my tie. Enough that all was neat, harmonious, and suitable to Mrs. Philby Phipp. Behold me, then, complete a hasty search to find the card and reassure myself that this is certainly the day it is and 10 p.m. the hour, p.m., not a.m., not after breakfast, good, and then outside, 
to jump into a cab and take the winds, the cold east winds of March, with beauty so. Let us get on more quickly, looms ahead, tragedy let us on and have it over. I hung with men and women on the stairs, and watched the tall white footman take the names, and heard him shout them out, and there I shaped my own name ready for him, Mr. Brown. And Mrs. Philby Phipp, hearing the name, would, I imagined, brighten suddenly, and smile and say, How are you, Mr. Brown? And in an instant I'd remember her, and where we met, and who was Mr. Phipp, and all the jolly time at Grindelwald, if that was where it was, and she and I would talk of art and politics and things, as we had talked these many years ago. So, Mr. Brown, I murmured to the man, and he, the fool, he took a mighty breath, and shouted, Mr. Brownie, Brownie, yes. He shouted Mr. Brownie to the roof, and Mrs. Philby Phipp, hearing the name, brightened up suddenly and smiled and said, How are you, Mr. Brownie, Brownie, Lord? And while my mouth was open to protest, How do you do to someone at the back? So I was passed along into the crowd as Brownie. Who on earth is Mr. Brownie? Did he, I wonder, he and Mrs. Phipp, talk art and politics at Grindelwald? Or did one simply point him out to her with, That is Mr. Brownie? Were they friends, dear friends, or casual acquaintances? She brightened at his name, some memory, came back to her that brought a happy smile, why, surely they were friends, but I am brown, a stranger, all unknown to Mrs. Fitt, as she to me, a common interloper, I see it now, an uninvited guest, whose card was clearly meant for Mr. Brownie. Soft music fell, and the kaleidoscope of lovely woman glided, swayed and turned, beneath the shaded lights but mr brownie nay brown not brownie stood upon one side and brooded silently some spoke to him whether to brown or brownie mattered not he did not answer did not notice them just stood and brooded then went home to bed a few tricks for christmas in the manner of many contemporaries now that the festive season, copyright, is approaching, it behooves us all to prepare ourselves, in some way, to contribute to the gaiety of the Christmas house-party. A clever conjurer is welcome anywhere, and those of us whose powers of entertainment are limited to the setting of a booby-trap, or the arranging of apple-pie beds, must view with envy the much greater tribute of laughter and applause which is the lot of the prestidigitator with some natural gift for ledger domain fortunately there are a few simple conjuring tricks which are within the reach of us all with practice even the clumsiest of us can obtain sufficient dexterity in the art of illusion to puzzle the most observant of our fellow guests the few simple tricks which i am about to explain if studied diligently for a few days before christmas will make a genuine addition to the gaiety of any gathering 
and the amateur prestidigitator, if I may use that word again, will find that he is amply repaying the hospitality of his host and hostess by his contribution to the general festivity. So much by way of introduction. It is a difficult style of writing to keep up, particularly when the number of synonyms for conjuring is so strictly limited. Let me now get to the tricks. I call the first Holding the Lemon. For this trick you want a lemon and a pack of ordinary playing cards. Cutting the lemon in two, you hand half to one member of your audience and half to another, asking them to hold the halves up in full view of the company. Then, taking the pack of cards in your own hands, you offer it to a third member of the party, requesting him to select a card and examine it carefully. When he has done this, he puts it back in the pack, and you seize this opportunity to look hurriedly at the face of it, discovering, let us say, that it is the five of spades. Once more you shuffle the pack, and then, going through the cards one by one, you will have no difficulty in locating the five of spades, which you will hold up to the company with the words, I think this is your card, sir, whereupon the audience will testify by its surprise and appreciation that you have guessed correctly. It will be noticed that, strictly speaking, the lemon is not a necessary adjunct of this trick, but the employment of it certainly adds an air of mystery to the initial stages of the illusion, and this air of mystery is, after all, the chief stock in trade of the successful conjurer. For my next trick, which I will call the illusory egg, and which is most complicated, you require a sponge, two tablecloths, a handful of nuts, a rabbit, five yards of colored ribbon, a top hat with a hole in it, a hard-boiled egg, two florins, and a gentleman's watch. Having obtained all these things, which may take some time, you put the two tablecloths aside and separate the other articles into two heaps. The rabbit, the top hat, the hard-boiled egg, and the handful of nuts being in one heap, and the ribbon, the sponge, the gentleman's watch, and the two florins in the other. This being done, you cover each heap with a tablecloth, so that none of the objects beneath is in any way visible. Then you invite any gentleman in the audience to think of a number. Let us suppose he thinks of thirty-eight. In that case, you ask any lady in the audience to think of an odd number, and she suggests, shall we say, twenty-nine? Then, asking the company to watch you carefully, you... Uh, you... To tell the truth, I have forgotten just what it is you do do, but I know that this is a very good trick and never fails to create laughter and bewilderment. It is distinctly an illusion worth trying, and if you begin it in the manner I have described, quite possibly some way of finishing it up will occur to you on the spur of the moment. By multiplying the two numbers together and passing the hard-boiled egg through the sponge, and then taking the... or is it the... Anyway, I'm certain you have to have a piece of elastic up the sleeve, 
and I know one of the florins has to... No, it's no good. I can't remember it. But mention of the two numbers reminds me of a trick which I haven't forgotten. It is a thought-reading illusion and always creates the maximum of wonderment amongst the audience. It is called The Three Questions. As before, you ask a gentleman in the company to write down a number on a piece of paper, and a lady to write down another number. These numbers they show to the other guests. You then inform the company that you will ask any one of them three questions, and by the way they are answered you will guess what the product of the two numbers is. For instance, if the numbers were thirteen and seventeen, then thirteen multiplied by seventeen is, let's see, thirteen sevens are thirteen sevens, seven threes are twenty-one, seven times one is, well, look here, let's suppose the numbers are ten and seventeen. Then the product is a hundred and seventy, and one hundred and seventy is the number you have got to guess. Well, the company selects a lady to answer your questions, and the first thing you ask her is, When was Magna Carta signed? Probably she says that she doesn't know. Then you say, What is the capital of Persia? She answers Timbuktu or Omar Khayyam, according to how well informed she is. Then comes your last question, What makes lightning? She is practically certain to say, Oh, the thunder. Then you tell her that the two numbers multiplied together come to 170. How is this remarkable trick performed? It is quite simple. The two people whom you ask to think of numbers are confederates, and you arranged with them beforehand that they should write down 10 and 17. Of course, it would be a much better trick if they weren't confederates, but in that case, I don't know quite how you would do it. I shall end up this interesting and instructive article with a rather more difficult illusion. For the tricks I have already explained, it was sufficient that the amateur prestidigitator, I shall only say this once more, should know how it was done. For my last trick, he will also require a certain aptitude for ledger domain in order to do it. But a week's quiet practice at home will give him all the skill that is necessary. The Mysterious Pudding is one of the oldest and most popular illusions. You begin by borrowing a gold watch from one of your audience. Having removed the works, you wrap the empty case up in a handkerchief and hand it back to him, asking him to put it in his waistcoat pocket. The works you place in an ordinary pudding basin and proceed to pound upon with a hammer. Having reduced them to powder, you cover the basin with another handkerchief, which you borrow from a member of the company, and announce that you are about to make a plum pudding. Cutting a small hole in the top of the handkerchief, you drop a lighted match through the aperture, whereupon the handkerchief flares up. When the flames have died down, you exhibit the basin, wherein, to the surprise of all, is to be seen an excellent Christmas pudding, which you may ask your audience to sample. At the same time, 
you tell the owner of the watch that if he feels in his pockets he will find his property restored to him intact and to his amazement he discovers that the works in some mysterious way have got back into his watch and that the handkerchief in which it was wrapped has gone now for the explanation of this ingenious illusion the secret of it is that you have a second basin with a pudding in it concealed in the palm of your right hand at the critical moment when the handkerchief flares up you take advantage of the excitement produced to substitute the one basin for the other the watch from which you extract the works is not the borrowed one but one which you have had concealed between the third and fourth fingers of the left hand. You show the empty case of this watch to the company before wrapping the watch in the handkerchief and handing it back to its owner. Meanwhile, with the aid of a little wax, you have attached an invisible hair to the handkerchief, the other end of it being fastened to the palm of your left hand. With a little practice, it is not difficult to withdraw the handkerchief, by a series of trifling jerks, from the pocket of your fellow guest to its resting place between the first and second finger of your left hand. One word more. I am afraid that the borrowed handkerchief to which you applied the match really did get burnt, and you will probably have to offer the owner one of your own instead that is the only weak spot in one of the most baffling tricks ever practised by the amateur prestidigitator to use the word for the last time it will make a fitting climax to your evening's entertainment an entertainment which will ensure you another warm invitation next year when the festive season copyright comes upon us once again End of section 8